brother. Okay guys, join me today as I will attempt to fulfill a dream I have always had here within the wizarding world. I have always been just a little bit bummed that back when the Harry Potter books were actually being released, we weren't theorizing here on YouTube. Granted, YouTube didn't exist yet and I was nine, but Pottermania was real. Like I got a little like, Macho Man, like Randy Savage, like Pottermania. And it's not to say that at this particular time, I didn't have theories. I just happened to be young enough to fall for every single trap. Like I was absolutely certain that Snape was definitely the one trying to steal the stone. Like Quirrell, what? Serious, definitely wanted to kill Harry. Mad-Eye was just an amazing teacher and Dumbledore's death all but proved that Severus Snape was a punk. But not to worry guys, I've grown. Now I just choose to not believe anything. It's a hard world. I personally am now a gravity skeptic. You just wait one day, we're flying into the air. For clarity, I don't actually believe that to be true. Don't even get me started on birds. I feel like I've gone off the rails. The real point I'm trying to make here is that sometimes I feel like the anticipation and discussion about what might happen is part of the joy of the books themselves. And never was this more true than in between the release of Half-Blood Prince and Deathly Hallows. With the end in sight, theories were going rampant. MuggleNet literally released a book titled, and I'm going to read it because it is this long, What Will Happen in Harry Potter 7? Who Lives? Who Dies? Who Falls in Love? And How Will the Adventure Finally End? It had all sorts of theories and even included like odds on specific characters and their likelihood of surviving the last installment. And in fact, during this particular era is when I heard my first ever fan theory one day during cross-country practice from a dear friend. He explained to me that the initials R-A-B inside of the locket that Dumbledore and Harry retrieved, thinking it was a Horcrux, was a direct reference to Regulus Black. I remember thinking, wow, you pay a lot more attention than I do, and also just having my mind blown at the exact same time. Because this was really the first time that anybody had truly shed light on me that if you looked carefully enough at the details inside of the story that you might be able to unearth something that's still coming. And in a lot of ways, I feel like that specific moment in my life directly led me down the path to what I do today for a living. But with the books reaching over 20 years old at this point in time, it occurred to me that there are entire generations of readers that will never have the opportunity to have that fun, that discussion and anticipation. So today we're going to try to recreate that magic for you and travel back to July 2007, just mere weeks before Deathly Hallows would be released and we would all finally get our answers. Today we'll discuss the top five fan theories heading in to Deathly Hallows. Why wait when we can just dive right on in with number five, Wormtail kills Remus. Yeah, so there was a lot of discussion about Wormtail in particular going into Deathly Hallows and what his fate may be, especially due to this one particular line from Dumbledore. The time may come when you'll be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. Pettigrew owes you his life. You have sent Voldemort a deputy who is in your debt. When one wizard saves another wizard's life, it creates a certain bond between them. And I'm much mistaken if Voldemort wants his servant in the debt of Harry Potter. This is magic at its deepest. It's most impenetrable, Harry. But trust me, the time may come when you'll be very glad you saved Pettigrew's life. This quote comes in Prisoner of Azkaban after Peter escapes, but from the sounds of it, Peter and Harry are now locked in some kind of life debt that still needs to play out somehow. And given the fact that Peter is really the one responsible for setting all of this in motion by betraying James and Lily, it would obviously be super satisfying if in the end, Harry's mercy towards Peter is the thing that eventually leads to Voldemort's downfall. This theory would suggest that before that happens, though, Peter 
is going to kill Remus. And right out of the gate, I can almost even see where it would feel like this theory is maybe turned on itself a little bit. That like Peter would finally get his own comeuppance from the last remaining Marauder. But no, this theory actually stems from Wormtail's own wrist in the form of his silver hand that he was gifted for the return of Voldemort and how it would be a secret weapon against Lupin. The silver is particularly interesting because at least within the wizarding world, there's not a lot of lore surrounding it in particular. However, if you're up on your werewolf lore, you may be aware of the fact that a silver bullet is one of the known ways that you can actually take down a werewolf. And since Peter was directly responsible for leading Voldemort to James and his death and instrumental in the return of Voldemort, which leads to serious death, the killing off of Lupin feels like it would give him a complete set, if you will. And also just completely round off his evilness. And honestly, it fits so nicely that part of me almost just wishes that this is what happened. Or for that matter, I guess if I'm wishing, I just wish Remus didn't die at all. But he did end up dying, so why not this way? I could actually even see a situation where it plays out maybe just a little bit differently than you might think. Like say Lupin transforms into werewolf once again, which under this scenario would potentially put Harry at risk and allow Peter to satisfy that life debt by stepping in to save Harry, but also taking out the last Marauder in the process. What a nice, neat bow, right? Like it provides some small amount of redemption for Peter and also comes with this like kind of tragedy situation with Lupin. Alternatively, if Peter just killed Lupin out of straight up malice, it also could have set up some kind of neat situation where like Ron or Hermione steps in, you know, as a true friend and has some really awesome finishing move on him. Actually, even on that note, Neville stepping in and being the one to finish off Peter would also kind of have its own quality about it because Neville is sort of the Peter to Harry, Ron, and Hermione's James, Sirius, and Lupin. That was a bunch of names. It would have been a really cool bookend to that idea from the very first book where Neville is rewarded for standing up to his friends, which is much more difficult to do than standing up to your enemies. But instead, we ultimately see that Peter's demise comes with the message that there's still just a little bit of good left inside of everyone, except for Voldemort, whose gift to Wormtail sees the moment of weakness and mercy that Peter has towards Harry, and it immediately turns on Peter, which I suppose is also not a bad way for things to go down. I don't think anybody has any love lost over Peter. Uh. Either way though, moving on to theory number next, AKA arbitrarily fourth. Just as a general FYI, whenever we're making these lists, they aren't like weighted as much as the ranking might suggest. At the end of the day, they just have to go in some order and we are where we are. Does that sound good? Good. Either way, number four, Neville kills Bellatrix. I mean, if we're gonna talk about Neville getting a kill in the final installment, the far and away most prevailing theory was that he was taking down Bellatrix. Somehow this one almost felt like obvious or possibly even just expected. I mean, don't get me wrong, Molly taking down Bellatrix is one of the best, nay, the best moments in the entire series. Not my daughter, you bitch. The final chapters of the story really have an emphasis on the power of a mother's love between Narcissa lying to Voldemort about Harry still being alive in the name of discovering if Draco is still alive, Molly's defeat of Bellatrix by way of defending her children, and Harry's return to life through Lily's sacrifice. I mean, just shout out to moms, am I right? Here's a photo of ours here on set with us. She is the best. But I mean, come on, is there a sadder moment than when Neville is at the St. Mungo's ward and he pockets the bubblegum wrapper? I mean, honestly, just, just thinking about picturing it makes me emotional. He just wants anything from his parents at all, regardless, it doesn't matter what it is. 
Ah. And of course, because Bellatrix is the one directly responsible for the condition of Neville's parents, there is just such a want for him to get his revenge. It just feels like something that's written in the stars. Even like Neville's own introduction to the story is a direct impact from Bellatrix's actions. It's really hard for Neville in those early years. His greatest fear is one of his own professors. And on top of that, at home, he's just getting nonstop pressure from his grandmother to live up to his father's greatness. But then Bellatrix breaks out of Azkaban and all of a sudden we see a brand new Neville. He is motivated to get better and rises to the occasion and then finally encounters her at the Department of Mysteries where she kills Sirius. And I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, Neville's pulling of the sword and destroying the Nagini Horcrux is absolutely epic. But there's a part of me that also wishes that he got to just like run Bellatrix through with the sword too while he was at it. And while I know we all unanimously agree that would have been epic, in the end, I do still feel like it all fits the way that it should. Neville destroys the Horcrux, but that's a lot more akin to just destroying pure darkness. But Neville himself doesn't need to be a killer. And even for Molly, when she kills, <clears throat> destroys Bellatrix, it's in the name of protecting her children. No matter what for Neville, it would be revenge if he did it. And that's just not who Neville is. No matter how bad we all wanted it for him. I'm not gonna lie, I wanted it pretty bad. But from there, we can move on to one of my other favorite just theories in general with number three, the real reason that Dumbledore loved being on the chocolate frog cards. I wish this one was true. And at the end of the day, I still feel like there's some hope left on the table that just maybe it was anyway, but it all really stems from this one comment from Bill. Lupin says, they've demoted him from chief warlock on the Wizengamot, that's the wizard high court. And they're talking about taking away his order of Merlin, first class too. But Dumbledore says he doesn't care what they do as long as they don't take him off the chocolate frog cards, said Bill grinning. And this could just be a complete throwaway line from Bill, where he's just sort of touching on the idea that like Dumbledore is a mixture of brilliance and madness. Of course he cares more about being on a novelty trading card than some high important sounding title. What an odd guy. But this theory is that Dumbledore had good reason to want to be on the chocolate frog cards. And that is because this is actually how the Order of the Phoenix is able to communicate with one another. Fittingly, it's actually like a more advanced version of the exact same thing that Hermione thinks up for the DA by way of using the galleons and the protein charm as a way to communicate. In fact, the payoff would even be kind of amazing because what they end up calling their organization is Dumbledore's army and they would quite literally be using his own form of communication. On top of that, Dumbledore himself has a long-standing and obvious relationship and interest in just sweets in general. One of the very first things we ever hear him say is offering a lemon drop to Professor McGonagall. He also uses different kinds of candy as the passwords to his own office, meaning that he trusts candy to protect his space. And even in some odd way, in Harry's first year, he's using Dumbledore's chocolate frog card to ultimately solve the dilemma. That's where he's heard the name Nicholas Flamel. Heck, even when Harry is just examining Dumbledore's chocolate frog card on the train on his way to Hogwarts, he even remarks, Hey, he's gone. Well, you can't expect him to run around all day. And yet, that's not true. Most paintings can leave their frames, but when they do, it's usually to go to other paintings of themselves. So why wouldn't it be possible for Dumbledore to have some kind of master version of it and be able to use the chocolate frog cards to communicate with all of his people? Personally, 
I love this theory, even though it's never revealed to be true, I still feel like it holds some weight. In fact, even in Fantastic Beasts, we see that Dumbledore communicates through his other secret organization through that book that Nicholas Flamel has. Even in the books themselves, specifically in Order of the Phoenix, Harry goes to great lengths to get into Umbridge's fire to check to see whether or not Sirius is at headquarters. Later on in the story, Dumbledore explains to Harry that there was no reason for him to specifically go to the Department of Mysteries and that the Order of the Phoenix has a different way of communicating with one another. Chocolate frog cards. That's the other way. And Patronuses, because someone's going to leave that comment. And you might think that this idea seems risky or that the Death Eaters might catch on to it or just that somebody who isn't supposed to catch on to it would catch on to it. But I don't think so. In a way, Dumbledore almost even explains why this wouldn't be a concern when he's talking to Harry in King's Cross Station. That which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend of house elves and children's tales, of love, loyalty, and innocence. Voldemort knows and understands nothing, nothing that they all have a power beyond his own. A power beyond the reach of any magic is a truth he has never grasped. Somehow I feel like chocolate frog cards are not far off the end of the list of house elves and children's tales. And as such, a chocolate frog card would fly right under Voldemort's non-existent nose. Guys, we need to pause right there to give a huge thank you to today's sponsor, Gooder. There's better than there's Gooder. As ever, guys, I am so excited to tell you about Gooder sunglasses. They are genuinely my favorite sunglasses on the market right now. And no, they did not ask me to say that. It is just true. I have been a fan of this brand for years. But let me tell you why they are my favorite. And I will admit, these next bits are copy points, but they are also accurate. They are super lightweight and comfortable, 100% polarized, stylish, and start at just $25 a pair. Guys, when I was in high school, I would save four months in order to buy a pair of fashionable sunglasses. And I absolutely loved them, but they were just so prohibitively expensive and it was so easy to lose or break them. But Gooder sunglasses, on the other hand, are not only affordable, but they're also very durable. They were specifically created for runners and designed to not fall off of your face, which I can absolutely confirm is true. But even in the rare event that they would fall off for some reason, it is less likely that they will break. And I'm saying that from personal experience. Gooders have really been on my face through all of it. From running my first ever marathon to a few intense hiking trips to relaxing on the beach or just my everyday pair in my car. This is really why I just can't recommend them enough. I'm overall just super excited for Gooder to be a sponsor of the show because it's a great way to support Super Carlin Brothers and get a great pair of sunglasses in the process. So if you'd like to support the show and pick up a pair, Gooder is giving Super Carlin Brothers viewers free shipping on their first order. There's a link in the description down below, but all you have to do is head on over to gooder.com super and use promo code super for free shipping on your first order. Gooder also offers an amazing 30-day money-back guarantee and 100% satisfaction. Find your pair today at gooder.com super promo code super for free shipping on your first order. Link in the description down below. But on the topic of Dumbledore though, we need to of course move on to theory number two that Dumbledore faked his own death. True, this one is so hard to like retroactively wrap your head around once you know the whole story. Specifically, Snape's love for Lily and his role as a double agent. He's been working for Dumbledore the whole freaking time. But it was also really difficult going into Deathly Hallows, not knowing that this was ultimately going to be how everything was resolved and hard not to imagine a scenario where the battle felt like it was lost and high up on the mountain would rise Dumbledore the White. Everyone would have believed him to be gone, but no, instead, he's the last wave of reinforcements that turns the tide. But alas, Earwax, this is not the case. Dumbledore is in fact gone. 
Though he does kind of show up as Dumbledore the White. Right? Right? <laughs> but like, if you knew this to be true, going into the final book, it would feel like such a blow. Like, no more words of wisdom for Harry from his headmaster? What would that story even look like? How would he be able to explain everything to Harry at the end? He does anyway. It's all good, we're safe, we're safe. The point is though, is that even though he's not alive for the final book, we do learn more about Dumbledore in the final installment than probably the other six books combined. Although giant pieces of this come from the life and lies of Albus Dumbledore from Rita Skeeter, which doesn't exactly paint Dumbledore in the most positive of lights, I still think that we learn a lot from the character in this book. One is just simply the reality that not everyone is perfect. Even the great Albus Dumbledore had temptations and regrets in life. That even someone as wise as him could find themselves misguided along the way. And at the end of the day, the best he could do was strive to help those in need and leave a positive mark. But beyond that, I think that Dumbledore's true and real death also starts to mark some of the great themes of the story overall. Voldemort's desire to conquer death is the reverse of Dumbledore's own perspective, which is that there are worse things in life than death. Again in King's Cross, Dumbledore says, do not pity the dead, Harry, pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. And it's this exact sentiment that Harry himself had just embraced and what allowed him to walk into the forest to face his own fate, which is the perfect segue as we head into the final theory on our list of things you may have predicted would come in Deathly Hallows. Harry is a Horcrux. In Half-Blood Prince is the first time that we ever learn the word Horcrux and get a better idea of what Harry is actually up against in the battle to defeat Voldemort. Obviously, it's not the first time that we've seen a Horcrux since we spent all of book two dealing with one directly in the form of the diary. We just didn't know at the time that it was a Horcrux. And a lot of speculation was going around trying to determine what those other final Horcruxes would be. We knew, of course, of the diary and the ring, both of which had already been destroyed. We also knew, thanks to Dumbledore's memory and the trip to the cave about the locket and the cup, Dumbledore also theorized that Voldemort's snake, Nagini, was likely to be one, given that he had extra control over her that was even unusual for a parcel tongue. And lastly, in keeping with the theme of Slytherin's locket and Hufflepuff's cup, that the last piece would probably be something of Ravenclaw's. And when you toss just Voldemort Prime, his physical living self into the equation, that made seven, the number we were looking for. But going into Deathly Hallows, there had not been a single mention of any artifact from Rowena Ravenclaw at any point in time at all. So people began to theorize that, well, if there isn't an item from Ravenclaw, then maybe just Harry himself is the final Horcrux, or even if there is an item from Ravenclaw that maybe just Harry still is one anyway. It seemed to explain quite a lot, and obviously since this one ended up being true, there actually is quite a bit of evidence for it. For one, Voldemort very easily could have split his soul when he attacked baby Harry, which just is true. It would also sort of explain Dumbledore's vague line about how Harry has some of Voldemort's own powers. You can speak Parseltongue, Harry, because Lord Voldemort, who is the last remaining descendant of Salazar Slytherin, can speak Parseltongue. Unless I'm much mistaken, he transferred some of his own powers to you the night he gave you that scar. Not something he intended to do, I'm sure. Voldemort put a bit of himself in me? 
It certainly seems. I mean, honestly, when you read it, it's not even vague. He just straight up says it. Terry being a Horcrux also ties very nicely to the other super prominent theory at the time, which is just that Harry was going to end up dying. Actually, even at this time, there were some other rumors going around that Harry himself was going to have to absorb Voldemort's soul into himself, which would save him from having to ultimately kill Voldemort and leaving Voldemort's body essentially kissed by a Dementor. A fate worse than death, if you can imagine. If you're Voldemort, whose primary thing he fears is death. Actually, even beyond that, the other thought that maybe was even more radical was the sentiment that the neither can live while the other survives fragment from the prophecy didn't refer to Voldemort and Harry, but rather the two babies that could have been the chosen one. So Harry and Neville, meaning that Harry was going to have to kill Neville or vice versa. For the record, that is my least favorite conclusion available. We didn't go that way. We're all good. We're safe. But do you remember the book that I mentioned before? What will happen in Harry Potter 7? Who lives, who dies, who falls in love, and how will the adventure finally end? In that book, they have the odds for the characters' deaths, and I was always astounded by the fact that there was a one in four shot that Harry was going to die. At the time, I remember thinking to myself that it was absolutely ridiculous. There was no way Harry would die. He's the main character. But now that I look back on it, it feels like it could have been predicted that there was a 100% chance that he would die and also survive that death. It all comes down to this one tiny, but otherwise super important line in Goblet of Fire that I feel like goes criminally underappreciated. For a fleeting instant, Harry thought he saw a gleam of something like triumph in Dumbledore's eyes. But next second, Harry was sure he had imagined it. For when Dumbledore had returned to his seat behind the desk, he looked as old and weary as Harry had ever seen him. That look of triumph is Dumbledore responding to the news that Voldemort took a bit of Harry's own blood as part of his resurrection. Fortunately for us, the audience, Harry immediately misinterprets this information. He said the protection my mother left to me, he'd have it too, and he was right. He could touch me without hurting himself. He touched my face. But what Dumbledore actually realizes and can't explain to Harry, and therefore us, the readers as well, is that because Voldemort has some of Harry's blood and therefore Lily's protection inside of him, Harry is now tethered to life. So while Voldemort lives, so does Harry. A considerable amount of confirmation bias later, it was figure outable. Maybe. But once you combine all of this together with the fact that Harry is a Horcrux, then I dare say it was pretty so obvious that Voldemort was going to have to kill Harry and in the process of doing so, destroy himself. But there you go, guys. Those are the top five theories that you may have been contemplating if you were alive during July 2007 and part of Pottermania. But guys, as ever, be sure to let us know which of these theories was your favorite and were there any others that we didn't cover? Be sure to let us know in the towel section down below. Otherwise, as always, thank you so much for watching. Be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Also, if you wanna check out our latest What If series, we're trying to determine what would have happened if Voldemort had actually selected Neville as his equal instead of Harry. You can check out the start of that story right over here. But otherwise, guys, until next time, bye.